Hello, and welcome to River Writers, a monthly conversation about the craft of writing. I'm your host, Dale Olson, with the Writers Guild of Astoria. Our guest today is Irene Martin. Irene is an award-winning author specializing in Columbia River Fisheries history. Her nearly 50-year writing career has resulted in numerous books, including Beach of Heaven, Legacy and Testament, The Story of Columbia River Gillnetters, and The Family That Never Threw Anything Away. Irene has been a board member on the Lower Columbia Fish Recovery Board and is currently on the Board of Trustees of the Columbia River Maritime Museum, as well as Salmon for All, an organization of Columbia River fishermen and processors. She resides with her husband, Kent, in Skamakaway, Washington. She is currently working on a history of salmon canneries on the Columbia River. Welcome, Irene. Well, thank you, Jill. It's really a delight to have you here today. And uh, I, I love having someone here that's basically my next door neighbor, you know, Skamakaway being our closest community to Kathlamet. So you are practically, uh, practically a neighbor. And uh, I, I just wanted to know, what did you know about fishing before you met and married your husband, Kent? Almost nothing. <laughs> it was one of those situations. I was a librarian at Memorial University of Newfoundland in Canada, and they had a lot of fisheries classes. And as a reference librarian, I had to help students find materials for their essays and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that's where everybody started learning about fisheries. And then my husband uh, happened to be one of the students and asked me out for dinner, and I went, and oh. here I am. <laughs> did, did, you, did you have any idea what you were getting yourself into? None whatsoever. <laughs> it was one of those situations where I fairly rapidly realized I'm going to have to figure this fishing stuff out or my marriage won't last. And so I figured some of the fishing stuff out yeah and and how did you adapt to it uh in those those early years was it um a pretty steep learning curve it really was a steep learning curve in terms of the biology and also fishing I went out fishing with my husband who taught me a lot about that but then as I got deeper into the history of it uh, I realized there was a huge story there and also it was an ongoing story Uh, kind of like a Viking saga, so to speak. (laughs) And so um, there isn't a day where I haven't learned something new since that time. Yeah. Did did you start writing to pass the time on the boat? No, I didn't have any problem uh, with passing the time. There was plenty to do. Uh, It was basically uh, the Longview Daily News. I had a supplement in those days. This is 50 years ago. And they invited writers to submit work Mm -hmm. in case they wanted to publish uh, that work. So I thought, well, why not? And I did, and they accepted it, and they paid me for it. (laughs) (laughs) That was a concept that was kind of new. And so I sort of thought, you know, this might be kind of a fun way to earn some money. And ultimately, that's exactly what I settled into, was a career as a writer. Was was that initial writing centered on history or fishing or both? It was centered on fishing history. It was about pilings in the river, what they represented, Mm -hmm. such as old canneries, that sort of thing. And then I got a bit into the fishing on that too. Mm 
So that was, uh, I can still remember working on that, and that really was my first published, paid-for piece. So you hadn't really done any writing uh, before that? Other I wouldn't say that. I, I did a lot of writing, but oh. it was my, for myself, uh, poetry, and then I had written since I was in grade school and uh, carried it on through high school. But in terms of a career, my mother kind of hoped that I might consider it. But I, you know, in those days, no one pays attention to your mother when you're a teenager. So, <laughs> you know, I didn't do it. But later on, I realized that uh, she had spotted something that I had not and had encouraged me. And uh, her support was really terrific. Yeah. Well, you were lucky to have a champion uh, in those early years who recognized uh, a gift that you have. Um, we're so lucky to have uh, someone of your writing chops here in our in our lower Columbia region uh, to really delve into the, the history of the area and especially into the, the, the fishing history mm-hmm. of the area because um, that has been a mainstay uh, for so many families for so many generations. Um, we're lucky that we have you to, to document what, uh, what those early years especially were like. How did your book, Beach of Heaven, come about? Most of my books have come about uh, due to stories I've heard from other people. And it was, uh, the first book I wrote was, well, not the first one, but the first uh, major one that I wrote was Legacy and Testament. And I did that because of the fishery around me, and I could see that nobody else was writing on what I was looking at, the culture behind it. The Beach of Heaven was another thing. It's a county history, and I had read lots of county histories, but none of them really said what I wanted to say, which was, again, to focus somewhat on the culture of the communities and of the people there, rather than having basically a long timetable on it, a chronology, and nothing more. I was interested in people, and I was very lucky in my father-in-law, my husband's father, who uh, knew this history uh, When I first started writing around here, a lot of it was oral history. It was not on paper. And my father-in-law knew a great deal. I've often told people, including my husband, that I would have married my husband in order to get his dad for my (laughs) father-in-law. But he uh, was a wonderful storyteller and had a marvelous memory. And so a lot of what is in my books is what I have heard from other people as part of their culture, and that was true for both of those books, Legacy and then The Beach of Heaven. Did he, uh, is there a, a particular story of his that uh, that you really loved, or that, that sticks in your memory as just uh, one of those great stories that um, it just has all the elements of, of, of a really wonderful tale? I'm trying to think offhand, there were so many of them. <laughs> Uh, but he he talked a great deal about, um, I, I do remember one of those stories now, was he told a story of when Skamakaway had a regatta in the early years of the 1900s, and uh, people came with their children and put their children in cribs and stuff like mm-hmm. that for the dance. And some of the teenage teenagers were set to watch those children Well, it began to get dark, and there were no electric lights. And so it was time for the boat that had brought a lot of people in to leave. So the teenagers mixed the children up. (laughs) 
And that, this was my father-in-law telling me that they mixed the kids up and put them in different containers, as he put it. And so people came rushing in, grabbed a basket or box that they thought they'd brought their child in, got home and found that it wasn't their child. Now, he said he wasn't sure that this was true, but it was so good he had to tell me. So that's, that's kind of the early day life. It could have happened. Um, I, I will never be able to track that. It was never written down, but I thought it was so funny. Well, I'm sure everything got sorted out eventually. Took three days, according <laughs> to him. <laughs> oh, that's a wonderful story. What, what about a, a, fi- a favorite fish sto- fishing story? I think um, I have a couple of them. Uh, one is that our, our fishing vessel, when we were first married, was called the Floozy. <laughs> so whenever I was in port with Kent in the Floozy, someone would always ask if the boat was named after me. I got so tired of telling people no that finally when people would look at it, I would just say before they said a word, she's not named after me and leave them to draw their own conclusions about it. <laughs> who, who was the floozy named after? Actually, it was named after a... Um, my husband knew a very elderly fisherman on the river uh, from Norway or Sweden, still had a very strong accent, and uh, he uh, was not married, but he had a woman living with him in a little float house near the mouth of Skamakwe Creek. And uh, he came by when Kent was fishing one night. He came by in his boat and said, yeah, I think I'll go home and see the Floozy. <laughs> and Kent thought that was such a great name, so he named his boats the Floozy ever after that. Our most oh. recent boat is actually in the Maritime Museum in the boat storage, oh. uh, and it's the Floozy, and she wasn't named after me. Oh, well, it's a wonder. The story of the name is priceless. <laughs> now, was that... Was the uh, floozy, was that a, a bow picker? That was a bow picker, yeah. And we then built, uh, later on, another boat, a stern picker. And the stern picker is the one in the Maritime Museum. Now, does the picker indicate, uh, bow or stern, does that indicate which end you're uh, leave, uh, letting the nets out from? Yeah. It, well, where, where you're picking them in, where you pick, okay. uh, pull the net in. And so in a bow picker, you're pulling the net in from the bow. Mm-hmm. And in a stern picker, you're pulling the net in from the stern. They have a, a reel there that helps you uh, bring the net in. What, now, was your, uh, on the floozy, was that um, a motorized uh, to bring the net in? Or was that something that you had to do manually? On the first one, we had a hydraulic uh, roller. But you bring it in manually, but the roller is operated hydraulically, so it's a lot easier uh, for a skunk roller, for example, you're pulling that in hand over hand, and wow. there's very little help with that. Yeah, but so so because of that um, machinery, uh, you and Kent were able to operate your boat just the two of you. I would imagine. Oh yeah, yeah, and um, and we fished in Alaska as well. But yeah, we were able to do it ourselves. Uh, you know, uh, he fished on his own quite a bit too. But uh, there, especially when there wasn't a lot of fish around. But when we thought there might be a lot of fish around, that I went to to help out. Yeah, I I loved reading about um, the the women mending nets and the artistry and and skill that went into that. Um, I think that was in the the Legacy and Testament uh, book. Did you did you do any 
net mending yourself? I didn't learn to mend. It's a, a skill. My husband was very good at it, is very good at it. Uh, I learned how to hang a net, which is hang the cork line or lead line onto a net. I've probably forgotten that skill. It's been many years since I've done it. Uh, but he was very, very good at that, uh, at mending. And it's becoming a lost art, really. Uh, there are a lot of fishermen that don't know how to do it. They basically parcel it out to somebody else to do. Yeah. Is is there much gill netting uh happening on the the lower columbia these days a lot of it uh has changed dramatically just in the last five or six years but there uh, are some seasons still there's one up in zones four and five and there are a couple of other seasons as well that are still available but a lot of people in the summertime especially and have done so for years go to alaska and gillnet in places like bristol bay prince william sound cooks inlet that sort of thing yeah are are you and kent still fishing no um he sold out of bristol bay in 2011 i had sold my southeast alaska permit a couple of years before that and then we sold the columbia river permit last year but we had stopped fishing by that time uh when you get into your 70s you know it's pretty overwhelming to keep on fishing and neither of us felt that we wanted to continue pushing ourselves i imagine just balance and upper body strength and things like that start it's to kind all of play that. a role. It's it's all of that. And then your judgment also as you get mm-hmm. older. You have a lot more knowledge, but you are not necessarily able to use that in ways that are as productive as you once were. You know what you should be doing, but sometimes you have to say to yourself, I don't think I can do that. Yeah. Um, what What do you miss the most about fishing with with Kent? I miss going to Alaska. I think the Southeast Alaska fishery was the most beautiful in terms of scenery and really interesting in terms of the people you met as well. Uh, I really loved Alaska. Uh, Everything from the trip up to driving home all the way from Alaska, uh, which we did on a number of occasions uh, with a truckload of gear and stuff like that to mend. I miss those trips, um, and I miss the fishery in Alaska. Uh, As a friend of ours put it at one time, it's like fishing in a picture postcard. (laughs) And it was. It was absolutely beautiful. I I get the feeling just from um, listening to uh, fishermen uh, read their work at Fisher Poets that there is a real camaraderie that, that exists between people who do that for a living and uh they're probably they you probably have lifelong friends from that we work. do and it's a kind of an interesting way it's a it's a tightly knit fisheries community up and down the coast uh chances are good if you show up in a place like Sitka or Petersburg or uh any number of other communities there and you're fishing you'll find someone that knows you or that you know uh, we had that happen so many times in Alaska. And it was, you know, it got very commonplace, actually. You know, we're going up to Petersburg, who we're going to meet today or on this trip, or in Wrangell, uh, where we were a lot, where we ran into um, a woman who actually had been married to one of my husband's relatives, um. and we had no idea she was even still alive. So it's it's one of those things that uh, you can't avoid yeah. uh, the the people in that culture so to speak yeah 
Um, well, if you're just joining us, I'm Dale Olson with River Riders, and we're talking with author and historian Irene Martin, and she's regaling us with fishing stories and uh, just uh, reminiscing about a very interesting life spent fishing here on the Lower Columbia and, and up in Alaska. Um, now, you have written a lot of poetry, and you've, you've read your poetry at Fisher Poets. Uh, I was lucky enough to hear you read, I think it was the year before, um, before the pandemic. Uh, so that would have been 2019, I think. And um, I just wonder, uh, when, when do you write your poetry about fishing? Is that something that's always kind of bubbling up in your, you know, from your subconscious? Or uh, was, was it mostly written during those active years of fishing? It was written uh, whenever poems came to my mind, and some of those were when I was in the boat. Some of those, even now, are when I'm asleep and I'll wake up and there's a poem waiting to, for me to scribble it down. <laughs> and if I don't scribble it down, I won't remember it in the morning. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and then sometimes the pressure of a deadline will force me to look through what I have and think, oh, I could just finish that one off right now with another line or two. And so I'll go back sometimes into poems I've started but not finished. And uh, I have a lot of files of sort of dead letters, so to speak, yeah. <laughs> poems from the past. Yeah, so uh, do you, So it sounds to me like revision is um, really a tool that you use with, with your poetry. In all my writing, it's, uh, I do a first draft, and I'll let it sit for a few days, and then I will reread it and uh, do another draft. I often send it out to some friends of mine who are my readers, so to speak, and have them comment. And they, I have pushed them into being brutally honest, which is what I want, mm -hmm. and telling me if it stinks or not, and if it does, how I can remedy that situation. And I have two or three people that are really good at editing and telling me what they got out of it mm -hmm. so that I can reshape things. And and sometimes I sort of think about it and think, you know, I st still like it better the way it is. So <laughs> <laughs> That's your prerogative yes. as the author. <laughs> well, I have to say that um, just uh, I, I've been so fortunate uh, in my friendship with um, Robert Michael Pyle to uh, one thing that he has um really educated me about is the value in revision and going back and looking at a poem and finding those things that are unnecessary that you can trim away and finding words that maybe there's a better word that could you know mm -hmm. be used in a certain place and just um, whittling away at it and polishing it until it really just sings and that's something I didn't really understand uh, when I was um, you know an early poet I just pretty much thought well whatever came out you know that, that was mm -hmm. it you know it was just that, that was the finished product and so it's been really a wonderful thing for me to learn how um, a, a poem can usually be made better if you spend some time on it or revisit it and see where those places are that you could, you know, just tweak something or 
leave something, you know, take something away and, and make it stronger. It helps to know what your own bad habits are, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of mine is the extensive use of the passive voice. I, That's the first way often that my sentences come out is passive voice, and I have to go through everything line by line to take a look and turn it to active voice. And the other thing is my dependence at times of my first drafts on very flabby verbs. And Mm -hmm. you have to go back and say, is there a better verb for this? Is there a stronger verb for this? Is there a verb that's more in tune with what the rest of it is uh, rather than this flabbiness that I'm looking at right here. And so uh, that's, those are two of the tools I use is to know my bad habits and Mm -hmm. and to look for my bad habits. And to be able to spot and identify maybe some words that, at least for me, I, I there are some words that I tend to overuse. And after I've read a, a, several of my poems to myself, I'm like, oh, that word has shown up now in five of these poems. You know, maybe <laughs> maybe I should try, you know, try, try to look for another word that uh, will work just as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think some words do, are inherently musical or have... Um, you know, or evocative, and uh, but it is good to to have that self awareness, especially as a writer, and uh, to know, like you say, to know what your bad habits are. Uh, would you Would you read a poem of yours for us? Sure, we would. We would I, be very grateful. Right at the beginning of COVID, I had written a little book called "Watching Leaves Let Go," which were my poems that I'd collected, and of course. I wasn't able to go anywhere yeah. <laughs> because of COVID, so so they languished. But I'll read one called From My Night Window, and because this is radio with no visuals, uh, let me give you an idea. I mentioned something called the dinosaur tree here, and what it really is is a weeping fur that for a long time took the shape of a woolly mammoth on our backyard. <laughs> so we and the children called it the dinosaur tree but it it is nothing it has nothing to do with the dinosaur the egg-shaped moon wobbles behind the dinosaur tree pulling salmon and their tidal migrations back and forth in cycles of cycles from my night window i see salmon stars in their eternal migration through the galaxy and wonder what do salmon do in the dark Do they procreate and die like ancient stars, leaving a black hole that pulls us into that memory? Are we stardust or salmon slime? I I love that you, in that poem, you ask, I, I wonder what salmon do in the dark, because that is, um, that is the job of poets, is to, um, give us those sparks of uh, thought and idea that that we don't that we just would normally not even question or wonder about ourselves well it's interesting in some of the scientific work that's done on salmon it's amazing how much of it is done in the daylight kind of a nine-to-five schedule of biologists taking scale samples and doing all that sort of thing but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of research done on whether salmon's lives and habits change after mm. dusk. And uh, that was something often that I was thinking about in the boat. Uh, what what if 
their behavior is different in the dark. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen a a whole lot of the science that says anything like that. So I I still have that question. What do salmon do in the dark? And maybe someday someone will have an answer for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like the scientists are studying them at their own convenience, uh, keeping human hours. I think that's true. And I think that we're so fixed on that that we haven't reckoned that salmon don't run on 9 to 5. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are not on our schedule uh, in any way. Is there hope for sa- for the salmon populations on the Columbia? I would like to say yes. Right now I have my doubts. There are a lot of variables out there that we know so little about when it comes to salmon. Uh, We don't know what they do in the dark. (laughs) We don't know where some of them go when they leave the river. We know where quite a few of them go, but not all of them. We, uh, in the case of uh, uh, some salmon, for example, like coho salmon, uh, they all, uh, they spawn as a kind of a cohort. So the juvenile salmon, when they hatch out, are mixing in with their kind of cousins and Mm. second cousins and third cousins and so forth. And they all go out to sea. And my guess is they stay pretty close together in sea, there being safety in numbers, and come back. And my my question is, when did they first start thinking about mating with each other? Mm. And, or do they? And, you know, they're going to go back to the same stream it yeah. will be the same fish that they came out with. Yeah. And so when did they know that? When did they say, this is the one? Uh-huh. Or, you know, it's, uh, is it random? Is it something that happens all the way through that cycle? Or is it a last-minute snap decision? You know, here's the, here's the time. <laughs> Got to go right <laughs> now kind of thing. Uh, I don't know. But those are some of the issues we don't know much about and yet... We think we know more than we do, and yeah. so, and I also believe very strongly in the law of unintended consequences. I suspect that what we're looking at is that something will come along that we were not expecting that the salmon cannot tolerate. Mm. The warm water yeah. that we're seeing right. is not a good thing. The droughts we are seeing are not a good thing. Leaving climate change aside... Those are the, th- the things that we are looking at that we know are happening. There are droughts going on and the water is warmer. That's we just know the reality. That. that is our reality and it's salmon's reality. And we are very close to stepping over that line mm-hmm. over which we can't get back. Um, what, uh, what can local citizens do to support salmon recovery? Um, because they're... There seems to be a lot of interest in, in helping helping those populations recover. Look at our own habits. What is our carbon footprint? What are we doing to keep water cooler or warmer? How are we using water individually? It isn't just a group thing. It's every individual has some role to play in this. And until we figure out what those are, I think uh, salmon are on a pretty... Pardon the expression, slippery slope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I wish I wish we had more time to talk. I Thank just, you. I I just love uh, having you here, hearing your stories and your poetry. 
Um, but we've got to wrap it up. So it's been wonderful to talk with you today, Irene. Thank you for spending time with River Riders. Again, for our listeners, you can find books by Irene Martin at the River Life Interpretive Center on Highway 4 in Skamakaway. The Writers Guild is a 501c3 supporting and encouraging writers in Astoria and the Lower Columbia. More information about the Writers Guild can be found online at www.thewritersguild.org. Thanks, Dad, for our theme song. Until next time, keep the words flowing and your pencil sharp. I'm Dale Olson for River Riders.